Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I was just out of town while I was out. Robert, you chatted with some old guests of the show. You, you brought back our friend Mark Mandinka, right? That's right. Mark Mandinka, executive director of the Amphibian Foundation here in Atlanta. Uh, he spoke with us pretty much just a year ago, like almost exactly a year ago, mm-hmm. about uh, you know the challenges of amphibian conservation, about what the Amphibian Foundation does, and also highlighted some really gnarly species of amphibian uh, and discuss their their uh, interesting ways of say, re- of reproducing. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was a fun chat. And uh, so since it had been a year, and since uh, Mark is a you know a, a local guest, uh, called him in, and uh, he joined me for a chat about uh, again amphibian conservation, what uh, the Amphibian Foundation has been up to. That's going to be in the the first half of the interview, uh, and uh, and then in the, the the second half of the interview, well, he, we're going to talk about uh, uh, some often vilified reptiles, namely uh, in in uh, our neck of the woods here, uh, the copperhead snake mm-hmm. and the snapping turtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, like why, would, you know, to, to what extent can we even answer the question, why are these uh, creatures persecuted? But then also what roles do they play in our environment and why we should value those roles? Awesome. Well, I cannot wait to hear this conversation. Uh, so should we jump right into the interview with Mark Mandika? Let's jump right into the amphibian pond. All right, Mark, welcome back to the show. And uh, for, for anyone who uh, is maybe a little foggy on uh, on your last appearance or didn't listen to that episode uh, yet, can you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone? Absolutely. And thanks for having me. I'm Mark Mandika, co-founder and executive director of the Amphibian Foundation. So, uh, yeah, you joined us on the show about a year ago and outlined the, the mission of the Amphibian Foundation and, and, uh, and, and, you know, why its work and the work of other amphibian conservation groups are so important. Uh, a year later, uh, have there been any, like, really, you know, great success stories, any new challenges? Uh, you know, what, what, what is it like a year later in the, the realm of amphibian uh, conservation? Uh, well, thanks. Uh, that's a great question. And a lot has happened in the last year, I'm happy to say. Uh, the Amphibian Foundation has grown a lot. We've uh, recruited lots of uh, passionate staff and interns and volunteers. I think we're up over 80 now. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, we have been expanding our conservation programs as well. Now, I, I believe I mentioned last time that the majority of our captive propagation animals were hatched recently. So uh, unfortunately, I can't relay any success with our captive breeding programs because the animals are still very, very young. Um, but in, in light of that, uh, we've, we've expanded our facilities. So we have um, lots of capacity for rearing endangered amphibians and are very hopeful we'll have some captive breeding success very soon. In in the the last episode that, that we conducted with you, you talked uh, you know about the, uh, the the challenges that are faced by so many of these species uh, uh, facing uh, endangerment and extinction, uh, and how susceptible they are to uh, to pollution and environmental dangers, uh, in large part because of the, the the fact that they breathe through their skin. Yes, um, they are a beacon for us. You know, um, you'll never see a, an amphibian drink 
They, for example, mm-hmm. they just absorb it all right through their skin. So anything that we've done to the environment or put in the environment is absorbed into the amphibians, and, and they are responding. You know, they have um, well-documented uh, responses to uh, agricultural chemicals, for example, where animals will can, will can uh, develop extra limbs or no limbs. These aren't injuries. They're just not mm-hmm. developing their limbs properly. You know? So that's pretty terrifying and it's also very well documented that certain agricultural chemicals will effeminize male amphibians so that large populations are are uh, biased uh, towards female or, or I think even uh, entirely female, depending on the dosage. And of course, another big challenge uh, in our environment is climate change and uh, uh, the, the various uh, effects of climate change, including extreme weather. And I understand you have an angle on this to discuss with us here today. Uh, absolutely. So uh, our primary focus or our first uh, focus has been on the flatwood salamander and uh, they're a coastal plain species. And so as we are developing tools to uh, produce animals for release into the wild, our partners are working on restoring habitat and basically uh, – uh, you know, following the models and not really considering areas that are expected to be under seawater in the next mm-hmm. 25, 50 years. Um, and that, that, you know, some of the last known sites today are predicted to be under seawater. And the last known viable population is considered to be at St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, and which uh, suffered a direct hit from Hurricane Michael and inundated a good portion of their breeding sites with seawater. So, you know, amphibians are believed to be intolerant of seawater. So Mm -hmm. we had to wait to see what the effects might be on these salamanders. Um, So our partners, uh, USGS and and, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, were monitoring these wetlands, watching as the seawater subsided, and were actually able to find some salamanders, which is really surprising because flatwood salamanders uh, do not tolerate much change to their habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, They're longleaf pine endemics, and they like it the way it's historically been. Uh, But, you know, they... Did not seem to suffer. It'll be a while before we know for sure, but it certainly did not kill all the flatwood salamanders. But living on St. Mark's for however long they've been there, conceivably they've been inundated with seawater before, but it was pretty scary for a while. So on, on one hand, they might be more resilient than originally thought uh, as far as seawater is concerned? It's, it's possible. It's, and I say that's surprising because we've been finding that they are not tolerant towards other alterations to their habitat. Mm. So um, it's, I guess that is a part of their natural cycle and grateful that it didn't end up being as catastrophic as we had feared. But of course, that's cyclical expo- exposure to uh, to salt water as opposed to uh, to like permanent uh, uh, environmental change due to rising sea levels. Correct. Um, we're still expecting that sometime, uh, if we go on our current trajectory, that St. Mark's won't will not be suitable uh, indefinitely, uh, and so we're looking towards more inland sites for restoration and to repopulate with flatwood salamanders. And how many spe- and how many uh, um, animals do you have on site uh, specimens of of, the, of this uh, species? Uh, yeah, um, so 
The frosted flatwood salamander that we're working with has been split in 2008 into two genetic clades, visually indistinguishable. Um, But there's the Atlantic clade, um, which extended from South Carolina down through Georgia and into northeastern Florida. Um, There's one known wetland left with the Atlantic clade frosted flatwood salamanders. and those are from Fort Stewart in Georgia, a mm-hmm. uh, military base that I personally have been surveying since 2012, uh, and it's blinking out. So mm-hmm. in all of these years, we had established a colony of three animals, okay? Um, this year, we detected uh, 40 larvae, oh, and that nice. was a, considered a huge success. Yeah. Um and so we were able to increase our captive population. Um, and so obviously when you're just trying to breed the animals, you know, as many as you can have is is great. Um, the Gulf Coast clade, which includes St. Mark's and Apalachicola National Forest, we have considerably more animals because of the efforts of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has been doing extensive egg surveys. And so frosted flatwood salamanders breed in ponds, but only when the ponds are dry, hmm. which is really weird, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. they come into a pond, and if it has water, it's it's not usable for these salamanders. They breed in the dry ponds. They leave, and the eggs sit there and wait for seasonal rains to fill oh, and wow. inundate the eggs. So huh. in a in a in a time where the climate is shifting so dramatically, you know, these eggs are getting. Uh, stranded, they're just drying out in the me- in the meadows that they were laid in, and so it's been vital for Florida Fish and Wildlife to collect these eggs. You know, and when it looks like they're not going to get the rain they need, the eggs have been collected and raised on the grounds there, and then just released after they've uh, metamorphosed. But a portion of them, three hundred and forty-four of them were brought as egg to the amphibian foundation where we hatched them out last year. So that was a significant boost to our captive program. And I'm happy to say they're, they are doing well and seem to be acclimating well. So we're just hope that they grow and then, you know, get in the mood for love and make some baby <laughs> salamanders for us. Well, that's, that's excellent. That is good to hear. Uh, so you've mentioned some of these, uh, some of these organizations that, uh, that, and, um, and, and groups that you're already working with. Do you have any new partners you would like to highlight? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, this year we, we've joined forces with the Memphis Zoo. And, oh, excellent. Uh, yes, um, and a great, passionate, and very supportive group. And we applied and received a grant to extend our um, our outdoor laboratory. So we have 20 artificial wetlands set up for breeding endangered amphibians. Uh, and through the Memphis Zoo, we're extending that to 30. Um, and so that greatly increases our chances. Now, those those extra 10 will be focused on gopher frogs, which is a very, very rare frog here in the southeast. Um, few habitats remaining. Um, so we're excited to, um, you know, have the the suburbs of Atlanta echoing with the snoring calls of gopher frogs in the <laughs> evenings. And <laughs> we wonder what the neighbors are going to say about that. So they have a, they have a distinctive uh, call? Yes. It's it's a, a little bit obscene, but it sounds <laughs> it sounds like a, a lo- loud snore, especially when lots of males are calling at once. Interesting. Yeah. And so they're hopefully going to be 
are there ever going to be some on site in Memphis? Is that the plan, or are they just uh, supporting the uh, efforts here in Atlanta? Um, they are they are supporting the efforts, but also um, you know teams from Memphis who has already come down to mm-hmm. collect uh, sperm from our gopher frogs to uh, cryobank it so that this can be used in for future conservation efforts. So. Um, it's just the beginning of a really great partnership with that zoo. Oh, cool. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, so I have a lot of memories, uh, early memories going to that zoo and uh, and then traveling back to that zoo when I was a little older but still living in Tennessee. So, oh, that's great. Uh, and then on the, the research front, I understand you have a, an uh, exciting new bridge program. Yes, uh, I do. Or I would like to uh, talk about it. Um, so I am not a nonprofit administrator by trade. Um, I'm a amphibian biologist, but I have not had any time in the last three years to really pursue that. Um, administrating the the foundation has been my primary focus, and mm-hmm. and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, so it, we're meanwhile we're we're losing out on a lot of important contributions uh, scientifically and um, in the conservation world for the species that we're uh, working with. So we've been able to develop, uh, starting this January, a an official research program with a director of research, um, Dr. Tobias Landberg, will be heading it. And um, what we've decided to do with it is to build a bridge program, which is uh, – it allows us to work a very uh, extremely mentored relationship with people that are interested in coming and gaining a semester or two-semester-long experience hands-on working with very endangered species in conservation biology and uh, functional ecology and, and other really interesting aspects. So not only will we be uh, able to finally contribute uh, to, with the important efforts that we're undertaking, but we'll be able to train people and give uh, a very important experience to those who might not want to commit to a full graduate study Mm -hmm. or even to college. So we'll be targeting high school graduates and undergraduates uh, who might want to spend some time with us. It's very exciting. Oh, yes. Now, um, uh, another thing I, have, I just have to ask a question about is, is that uh, I've been following online, and I got to see part of it in person when you were first starting to set it up. But you have a, a new uh, a tropical frog rain chamber uh, there at the the, the foundation. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've, I've just been really impressed just to, to hear about all that's going into it and then to see uh, images of the, the finished setup. Uh, can, can you tell everybody a little bit about this? I mean, I've, I've never kept anything – uh, more than like a goldfish uh, in a tank, and so I was just astounded by the uh, the amount of of work that goes into one of these enclosures. Uh, yeah, it's a project that we're very proud of, and it's um, you know the Amphibian Foundation is not open to the public generally, but mm-hmm. we do have a a classroom with lots of events in inside, and this rain chamber is inside of that classroom, and it's eight feet tall and six feet wide, and and it's beautiful, you know. So this is um. Uh, a lot of planning, and it took months to build, but it's complete, and it was uh, sponsored. The the hardware, the tank, the filters, the lights, and all of that was sponsored by Zilla. And then uh, a local company, uh, SunPet, donated some really beautiful driftwood pieces mm-hmm. that really uh, make it very, very beautiful. Uh, so the point is, is that every every 
whether climatic parameter can be controlled by us. So we can really suit it for the needs of any tropical species, even the montane high-altitude species. We can cool it down to the 50s in there or raise it up to the high 80s. It can rain as often as we want. It can uh, mist in there uh, as often as we want, and it can even get foggy. And oh, that, wow. That's mostly for us because it looks really cool. <laughs> I don't think the frogs care. Um, and that's important. We can also it's, – it's somewhat of an interactive um, uh, way to draw kids and, uh, and people into this thing because mm-hmm. you can control the frog with a, uh, the fog with a button and you can uh, turn it from a, a pond into a stream with a button. Uh, certain frogs like to breed over streams, so we, we made sure to figure that in. Um, and then there's a lot of diversity in the way frogs like to um, breed and, and like to deposit their eggs. So mm-hmm. some will breed in the water, which is a typical frog thing to do. But then lots of frogs lay their eggs on leaves over water. So we have a great diversity of leaves. Um, and hopefully anything a, a frog could want to, to breed in there. And then, you know, um, the the – Activities and the development of the eggs can all be witnessed by people that are in the uh, in the classroom, and you know we also have tree holes there. There's a lot of very secretive frogs that like to breed in tree holes. So, <laughs> hopefully, we've got it all covered. Now that the breeding projects will rotate in and out, okay. but we've carefully selected some very active diurnal frogs to be in there permanently so that uh, no matter what's going on, we'll have some some very uh, active frogs in there. Um, so we've selected, of course, the deadliest frog on the planet. <laughs> who, who doesn't want to see that? Uh, oh, the yes. golden poison frog. And they're young, but they're uh, just starting to stake out their territories and they'll start singing before too long. So that'll be exciting. Now, if I understand correctly, this this tank also has thunder and lightning effects? So we are working on that, but we do not have the thunder and lightning hooked up yet. But there are certain species that are cued in to thunder and lightning huh. as part of their, you know, the real heavy storms. So right. we can make it rain very heavy in there, and then hopefully soon we'll have thunder and lightning because, you know, we want to be able to have any trigger we might possibly need. That, yeah, that's fascinating to think about because when I when usually when I think about uh, animal responses to, to to lightning and thunder, I just think of you know our our, our various pet dogs being terrified, uh, you know uh, basically just animals being cautious. And I, I never really thought about the fact that of course you know thunder and lightning would be tied in uh, to, uh, to to downpours and in uh, environments that have like a monsoon season or just you know heavy rains that that would you know potentially be a key. Season signal to certain species. Absolutely. You know, and, and most dogs don't want to be out in a downpour mm-hmm. anyway, so it's it's uh it's pretty funny. Yeah. So for any of our, our listeners in the Atlanta area um, or you know, anyone who will find themselves in the Atlanta area at some point, if they're interested in checking out the Amphibian uh, Foundation uh, headquarters, uh, what are, what do they need to know? What do they need to do? Uh yeah, we we welcome uh, visitors now again the the facility itself the building is not open to the public mm-hmm. so that but we do have many events that you can go to our website and see our events page but uh, we are located on a city park in our outdoor facilities um, the amphibian research and conservation center um, we nicknamed that metamorphosis meadow oh, nice. <laughs> that is open uh, city park hours so dawn till dusk and we just um, through a 
through a grant from Georgia Department of Natural Resources, we have some really beautiful signs out there. So you can walk out and see what we're doing. Uh, otherwise, it just it looks kind of peculiar. There are <laughs> these 20 cattle tanks, basically, that mm-hmm. have been fitted with endangered amphibians. But now they have some very beautiful signs explaining what's happening there and what we're trying to accomplish. Excellent. All right. Looks like it's time for a break, but we will be right back with more of the interview. And we're back. So one of the, the, the other reasons I wanted to bring you back on the show is to, to follow up on a, a conversation uh, I had with you um, uh, at, at the foundation uh, headquarters uh, several months back. And that's on the topic of unfairly vilified reptiles. Uh, because, uh, you know, we, 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 we're hardwired to have certain reactions to snakes. Um, and, and snakes, I think, are the, the, the obvious starting point here. And, and we, have, we have listeners all over uh, the world. We have listeners in Ireland who, you know, generally don't have to deal with snakes unless they want to. And we hear from listeners in, uh, in Australia uh, who have, have quite a few uh, snakes to, to contend themselves with. Uh, but here in, uh, say, the, the southeastern United States, what, what, what are our, what's our actual risk level with encountering a snake that could actually harm us, that actually is venomous? Uh. Well, um, thank you for bringing up this topic. It's very personal to me, and um, I have been focused on amphibians my whole life, but have always made um, it important to, to talk about the truths about some of these reptiles that people just really seem to hate or like to love to hate them, you know. And so, I like to give some facts whenever I'm asked, and, and for here. Um, you know, in the southeast, when I was moving to Atlanta, I was warned that there were going to be a lot of copperheads. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came in hoping to be able to see some copperheads. Um, and that is a regularly encountered species here in Metro Atlanta. You know, so um, what we've tried to do is just focus on educating people about the truths about copperheads and uh, and the Probably the most important thing is just how to properly identify one. Mm. So we do lots of workshops. Uh, we have copperheads as part of all of our children's programming, really. And, you know, to address the hardwired thing, I think to some degree you're right. But in our experience, so we do a lot of engagement with kids, mm-hmm. and they're not nearly as terrified as the adults are. You know, I so I think at least to some degree that is being taught. Right, um, they're queuing in on how yes. the adults in their lives are reacting to snakes. Absolutely. So, uh, for some of our camps, we have, and of course, in a protected container, but we have a live copperhead. And that's on Snake Day, which is Friday, and that's mm-hmm. also the day when the parents are invited. To come uh, for the last hour and and be taught by their kids what they had learned that week, mm-hmm. and the kids want to show off the copperhead, but the parents just don't even want to see it, you know. So uh, I think that's very telling. Um, can you uh, can you briefly uh, describe the copperhead uh, to our listeners? I'd be happy to. Um, so uh, there are some species that can be confused uh, unless you actually see a live copperhead. And then I don't think there's any mistaking them because they have a copperhead. Now, that's well named for that mm-hmm. reason. Um, and then when we give um, talks to the public, we usually hand out Hershey's kisses because they have Hershey kiss patterns on their backs. And oh. it's the only snake that has that. So um, – we hope 
that those treats will help drive that home. And, um, and you know, they do have a lot. They're beautiful snakes. They have a lot of coppery color on them. So they're well-named. And they also, that is meant to blend in with leaves. You know, if they're lying on a bed of leaves, they're practically invisible, you know. And so um, one of my committee members for graduate school has done a very um, – uh, done a study, very compelling study on, you know, if if a foot falls near a venomous snake, there's mm-hmm. very little chance that they're going to strike you, you know. So, um, yeah, he did this experiment with cutouts of feet and uh-huh. hands, mm-hmm. and hands would elicit much more of a response than feet. So that is part of our program as well as we're trying to encourage people not to grab or try to kill these things, you know. So. We have a Copperhead Rescue and Advocacy Program here in Atlanta where we took it upon ourselves. So we um, we go out. People can call us. If they can verify that it is a Copperhead, we will come and relocate it. So we don't want people to get bit. Mm-hmm. We don't want um, Copperheads to get killed. And, you know, so I've been collecting data on these calls, and only 6% of them are actually Copperheads. A lot of times they're killed you know mm-hmm. snakes they're just just doing their snake thing and people think they're copperheads and and killing them so we're trying to to offer uh, an alternative to that so uh, the a uh, number of, of the um the details you bring up here are are, are interesting for, for starters the whole uh, the uh, the fact that the snake reacts more to a hand than to a foot uh, I mean that makes perfect sense because it's it's it doesn't have a limitless supply of venom, and to use its venom is uh, is itself a risky move, and so it's uh, you know which which uh, in which case is it actually more threatened? It's going to be more threatened by the hand that is reaching into its abode, perhaps to grab it, and then uh, on the you know on the subject of just killing snakes, ha- having grown up or done part of my growing up in like a, in a rural environment. I certainly remember it, it being a thing that if if, if a, a, sna- a suspected venomous snake was encountered, it was like an adult's job to kill it mm-hmm. um, and to go after it and and you know chop it up. Uh, uh, the idea, I guess, being that it would it would just actively hunt us down or yeah. something, you know. Uh, but the, but these animals uh, have a have a role in the the local environment, even the local environment surrounding our, our, our houses. Right, and. Attacking humans is not their role. <laughs> um, so I've I've never had that happen. I've encountered lots of venomous snakes in my field work, and um, including in the Everglades, mm-hmm. which was not too shabby place to find venomous snakes. <laughs> and um, I've never had one uh, attack. Uh, I have them either retreat or um, show me uh, very politely. That they are not really digging this interaction, <laughs> and um, but you know they they do have a, a vital role, you know. And snakes are extremely important for a variety of reasons. Uh, broadly, all snakes, you know, most of them are are feeding on rodents, you mm-hmm. know, so that's their um, primary food source, at least for most uh, of the snakes that will encounter. And, you know, there, it's been shown that a decrease in snake populations is an increase in the rodent populations. And, and the rodent, unlike the snakes, the rodents do want to get into our house in many cases. <laughs> right. And yes. they do want to, uh, you know, actively uh, leech off of, of uh, our provisions. It, exactly. And 
uh, rodents can carry disease mm-hmm. that would affect humans. And, and that is also shown to be the case as an increase in tick-borne disease, for mm-hmm. example, um, when there's an increase in rodents. So uh, snakes are our friends, you know, and I try to really drive home that they just want to be left alone. You know, they really don't want to attack uh, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, they'll they'll show some sign that you can out know, uh, as a warning. You know, like the most conspicuous is a rattlesnake, and that rattle is just to show you that it really does not want to bite you. You mm-hmm. know, so and uh, and the copperheads do not have a rattle, but they will often rattle their tail regardless, and that's. Uh, if if the tail is in leaves, for example, it can sound a lot like a rattle, but it will shake it very, very rapidly. You know, so copperheads definitely do not want to bite. Now, um, in terms of the snakes that uh, live immediately around us, uh, for, for anyone who's not familiar with Atlanta, Atlanta is sometimes called a, like a city in a forest. Uh, you know, we have a, a fair amount of. Uh, of, uh, of vegetation, and uh, and my my home in particular is uh, you, know, you know surrounded by a number of big trees. Uh, it's not that huge of a yard or anything, but uh, we never really see snakes. But occasionally we'll find uh, uh, a snake skin, or uh, you know, or occasionally um, uh, there have been a time or two where we've glimpsed like a small snake, and then mm-hmm. it's gone, and we never see it again. It, are there? Are there snakes living around us like that, where we're just we're, we're, they're just secretive, and we're not uh, you know going to be privy to their their presence? Yeah, that's a, a great question because you know uh, you have to really want to find snakes to get out there and find them, and then it's still very difficult. Mm-hmm. So if you just see a snake, you know you're you're pretty fortunate here in Atlanta or really any metropolitan area. To if you still have snakes around, then, you know, that's some indication that there's at least some some habitat still available for them. Uh, so those are the, the glimpses that we get. The shed skin is a good one because that'll stay there for quite a while and mm-hmm. then give you some evidence. Now, uh, another uh, reptile that I wanted to, to talk about here is, is another one that I distinctly remember being vilified uh, when I was younger, and that's the snapping turtle. Oh, yeah. Um, like... One of the, the the examples I think I mentioned this uh, to you already is that I remember it being uh, I remember being told that if a snapping turtle was in your fish pond, that you had to kill the snapping turtle because it was going to inevitably eat all your fish or something along those lines. So I remember like fairly at the time as a, as a kid, like kind of horrific scenes of a snapping turtle being fished out of a, a pond by, uh, I think it was a scout leader uh, at the time, and then like hacked to death and just left uh, dead by the side of the pond, uh, all because there was this you know loose idea that it was going to uh, you know harm the fishing pond. Uh, and and it, it seems like there are like various um, um, you know other examples of that. I remember being mentioned where it just it sounds like people unfairly consider the snapping turtle to be um, uh, a nuisance or a menace, and then also felt like they had increased license to mess with it. Yeah, oh, you really hit the nail on the head with that because um, I think in some areas the snapping turtle's more hated than the copperhead. You know, mm-hmm. and um, but. Yes, I have been very involved in in snapping turtle advocacy. I guess um, mm-hmm. since since I started studying biology, um, and I think one of the inspirations was that someone had brought me. Uh, and this was in Massachusetts, but someone had bought, brought me a a snapping turtle that had been shot and mm-hmm. beaten, but it wasn't dead. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I was able to nurse this thing back to health. Now, the, the bullet, as far as I know, is still in this animal, um, but it was paralyzed on the right side, um, and he didn't snap anymore. You know, mm. so he was uh, he lost his snap, and uh, I would take him for outreach. You know, and I would. Um, talked to people about uh, snapping snapper uh, truths about the snapping turtle. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, for example, there's no attack snapping turtle. You know, they don't see you and then sneak up and, and right. attack you. That that's never happened. They they uh, they leave. You know, they see you and they're they're out of there. And um, and we could also show people how to approach a snapping turtle safely. You know, so that you know um, this this turtle that I'm mentioning, his name was Vito, and mm-hmm. uh, Vito. Uh, was in the, about 25 pounds, so uh, kind of average weight for a huge snapper you might see out on the road. And, you know, a- anybody can can safely move one of these things because occasionally that happens as well. It's like someone's trying to help a turtle, and, and it's snapping turtles also don't know how to show appreciation for being <laughs> helped. Right. So <clears> – <throat> But it, it's it's all about being safe and respecting the animal and and um, and acknowledging the truths around these because uh, obviously people are fascinated by them. But then there are those that do really enjoy uh, putting a hate on them or killing them or whatever. Yeah. So I mean, I can see where the fascination comes from because they are fascinating creatures. You know, they they have this. This kind of uh, you know ferocious nature, seemingly ferocious nature, uh, up close. You know they're like little tanks. But but where does this? Where, where do you think this this other side of it comes from? Like the the this idea that a that a snapping turtle would be a, you know an enemy of the wild because you know like you said they're not they're not seeking us out. Right. Yeah, they're not. Um, I think part of it is that for certain t- parts of the year, mm-hmm. the females travel to lay their eggs and mm-hmm. so they're not in the water and i think that's when a lot of the interactions happen so most of the time when you see a snapping turtle out of the water that's a female either going to lay her eggs or returning from laying her and she just wants to get back to her muck you mm-hmm. know but that's when a lot of the interactions happen and so you know i've been told so many stories about people putting broomsticks in their faces and stuff. And mm-hmm. I don't know how I would react if someone stuck a broomstick in my <laughs> face, but it would, yeah. would not be positive. But, you know, make no mistake, snapping turtles bite, and they bite hard. I would not want to get bitten by a snapping turtle. But, you know, one of the myths is that they uh, will bite your hand off or your finger. Mm-hmm. But it's been uh, proven that they lack the uh, the jaw strength to do anything like that, uh, removing a digit. I'm not saying it won't be pleasant, but, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, if someone's talking about that or biting a broomstick in half, then they're talking about a different species, the alligator snapper, which is very rare and very secretive. And mm-hmm. I don't think most people interact with those. It's the common snapper that is, uh, it lives in infamy and is uh, pretty persecuted here. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and like another myth I remember hearing as a kid was that, uh, and, and this just grotesque to, to think about, but the idea that if you were to put your palm out to the snapping turtle, it would not be able to, uh, and you kept your palm flat, the snapping turtle would not be able to bite your palm, Ugh. which sounds uh, like a terrible idea. This sounds just like a story that originated with, uh, you know, drunken idiots messing um, with a turtle. Um 
and then one that I uh, didn't uh, didn't know about until until recently. I think via one of your your, uh, your outreach episodes was uh, this myth involving snapping turtles and thunder and lightning. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes. Yeah, so um, I haven't heard those until relatively recently, but I would never put my palm up to a <laughs> snapping turtle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and then, yeah, I'm not sure uh, where the thunder and lightning came in, but I can't imagine that is based on any actual evidence. But uh, without knowing more, I wouldn't want to say too much. Yeah, but um, they they seem to be out and about regardless of the weather. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there's anything to it, but I could be wrong. Yeah, um, I, I think the version <laughs> I heard was that if a snapping turtle were to bite you while it thundered, it wouldn't let go until it thundered oh, or something to that effect. Oh. I, uh, I mean, no, again, no, something no. that sounds completely ridiculous and I know has snapping no... snapping turtle's bite is very quick but very powerful. Mm-hmm. So I don't think... Yeah, I've never had them bite anything and, and hold on for very long. It's... Um, uh, and, and it's really one of their last lines of defense. So uh, a snapping turtle on land is an awkward beast. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not comfortable. So, like, they literally – they're not messing around. They're just trying to get to where they're going, and it's going to be water. Uh, and so they're they're also very vulnerable. So snapping turtles – I don't know if you've ever seen the underside of one, but mm-hmm. there's – it's all flesh. It looks right. kind of like they're wearing a bikini that's yeah, too, yeah. too small. It, it doesn't have like as much a plate as <laughs> – yeah. yeah. So there's a lot – there are a lot of vulnerabilities there. And um, so they will – a lot of times they'll back up to you. If they see you, they'll point the back of their shell at you because mm-hmm. that's where the serrations are and it's pointy. So that – I can see how that would be effective for a predator, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and if that doesn't work and you're near the business end of a snapping turtle, it'll bite and they have a very long, long neck. Now, aside from just the, the, the you know, the obvious fact that we should not, uh, you know, be cruel to snapping turtles and, and actively provoke snapping turtles, uh, what, what is their, their role in a, in a local environment? Like what, what is the, what is the, how do they benefit, uh, uh the local environment? Um, yeah, great. Uh, snapping turtles are not the uh, incredible hunters that most people think they mm-hmm. are, you know. So they do a lot of – they'll eat carrion, you know, things that have died, things that are obviously easier to catch if mm-hmm. they're already dead. Um, surprisingly, uh, vegetation is a big part of a snapping turtle's mm-hmm. diet too. So uh, part of what they do is is eat – those types of things, but also dredge up. They stir up the bottoms of a lot of these wetlands, which is important to, to keep the wetlands healthy. I would, if I had a pond on my property, I would encourage the, the snapping turtles because they are keeping uh, some of the weaker, slower, dying or dead animals uh, eaten, mm-hmm. and also um, you know stirring up, keeping the, the bottom, the basin of these wetlands healthy as well. Now you mentioned earlier, you know, there, there's a safe way to to approach them. Uh, what 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 are the like? When, when is is it ever a good idea to approach a snapping turtle? Just uh, in cases where it's like, yeah on the road or well, yeah, on the road is a big one. Um, so if people were interested in doing that. Um, uh, first, make sure you're safe. Don't step into traffic or mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, but you, you certainly want to put the snapper in the direction it was heading. And the reason for that is that if you put it in the opposite direction, it's going to turn around and cross the road again. Because uh, uh, they're, like I said before, they're they're never just wandering. They know where they're going and mm-hmm. where they need to go. Um, and then there's two ways that 
uh, people pick up snapping turtles. Uh, my way is to you know, have to approach it from behind. Mm-hmm. It's very important. Um, and even the largest, fastest, most aggressive snapping turtles aren't as fast as, as not even close. So you can get behind a snapping turtle. Uh, and I put my hand underneath its tail on the plaster on the belly mm-hmm. shell and lift while simultaneously holding the base of the tail. You can't grab a snapping turtle from the tail exclusively without risking permanent injury to the vertebrae. That's the tail is mm-hmm. the vertebrae. So the majority of the weight is going to be, um, for me, I use my non-dominant hand underneath the turtle and just hoist that sucker. <laughs> and I've been able to lift, um, you know, pretty good size, uh, over 40 pound snapping turtles. That way you don't necessarily have to lift them up very high, just enough to scoot them off. And just remember, they're never going to thank you for that service. <laughs> All right, looks like it's time for a break to hear from our sponsor, but we will be right back with more of this interview. And we return. Now, um, when when we're talking about uh, snapping turtles and also the venomous snakes, uh, to what degree are they – uh, are these uh, various species protected uh, by by, by state and federal laws? Um, Federal laws, I don't know of any legislation um, in, in Massachusetts, at least when I lived there. It was a while ago, but the snapping turtle enjoyed no protections. Mm. Um, that may have changed since the 90s. Uh, in Georgia, it's really interesting because venomous snakes have no protections on them. Um, but all of the uh, native non-venomous snakes do. So um, technically, people that are killing non-venomous snakes thinking they're copperheads are break, breaking state law. Hmm. Um, and, then, and then the venomous snakes have no, um, no protection at all. Uh, Eastern diamondbacks are, uh, are not doing well, so there's a good chance that they could be protected in the future. Oh, well, that's good to know. And I guess it goes without saying that if anyone that's really interested in, say, having a, uh, a turtle or a snake as a pet should not just go about capturing them from the wild. That's horrible. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'll tell you why. Um, and there's really two reasons. One, one is you probably will, depending on the state, uh, be breaking some type of law. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, these animals rarely adapt well to captivity. So uh, it's best if you wanted a snake or a turtle. As a pet, and I would advocate for that if done responsibly because that is a gateway. It was Mm -hmm. a gateway for me. It's a gateway for many people to get involved in conservation because they're fascinating animals. Um, But uh, you can search out captive bred animals. that uh, These are uh, breeders who are committed to more sustainable practices and are producing animals in captivity so you're not removing animals from the wild. That's important, but also these animals just do better as pets, you know, than than pulling something out of the wild that could have some uh, more wild tendencies, but also, um, you know, don't typically acclimate well to captivity. All right. Well, let's let's come back to some some of the myths again. Um, uh, first, with, with snapping turtles, um, you mentioned already that uh, that, that uh, you know there's some sizable specimens out there. You know, you mentioned like forty pound snapping turtles. Um, 
how 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 big are the snapping turtles we're generally going to encounter in the wild, and then how how wild are the tall tall tails concerning their size? Oh, I, I've heard some good tall tales. <laughs> I think that's human nature, you yeah. know. Um, but um, the world's record for a snapping turtle, which was recently broken, so before it was seventy five pounds, when that's just an enormous snapping turtle. That animal had an eighteen inch shell, so a foot and a half. That's not as big as a Volkswagen Beetle, like some people claim, or a, a, a large car tire. And would that be like an alligator snapping turtle? No, that's oh. a common oh, snapping really? turtle. Okay. Alligator snapping turtles get much much larger, okay. but it's so infrequently encountered by anyone, let alone the general public, that, you know, most of these myths are around a common snapper. Okay. Um, the now the world's record is now 19 and a half inches, and that was an 86-pound animal, and that's massive. Yeah. The majority of the animals that we find, at least here in Atlanta, which are really large, are in the 20, low 30 pounds. So, And, and what kind of, what does the research tell us about their, their actual bite strength? Yes. So uh, I was very fortunate when I was an undergraduate, there was a visiting scholar coming, Anthony Harrell, and he studies bite force, mm-hmm. and he needed someone to go out and trap him some wild turtles to study. And I was very happy to have that responsibility. So I had trapped some snappers for him, and he came and measured the bite force of these snappers. So when I uh, mentioned, and that was, a, I think, a 48-pound snapper was the biggest, so that's a big, big turtle, mm-hmm. um, and it had a, a 50, uh, 15-inch shell. And so it was not, it lacked the draw strength, to, the jaw strength to do any significant damage to a human. Um, but there are some other turtles that, that he studied here in the, at the collection in, in UMass that were, could bite with uh, a lot of strength. So enough to even destroy his bitometer, <laughs> the device he used to measure the turtle's bite force, but the snapping turtles were not even close. Wow. Hmm. Now, in, in terms of the, the, uh, the venom of the copperhead, uh, to come back to that, uh, how, how venomous is the copperhead, and how does it, how does it stack up with other, uh, other you know, venoms and uh, naturally occurring poisons? Yes, thank you. Um, co- copperhead bites um, are not pleasant. I mean, I've never been bitten by a copperhead, but I would not want to. So, mm-hmm. uh, but there's been one confirmed human death from a copperhead bite. So that's very unlikely. You know, so um, I would never suggest someone just walk it off. I would immediately seek medical attention. But a lot of times, there's no need to to um, administer antivenin or anything like that with a mm-hmm. copperhead bite. Uh, their their venom is considered very mild compared to other snakes. And um, copperheads also lack um, a rattle or a, a, a cotton mouth to demonstrate that they're unhappy. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're more likely to dry bite on the first. And that, oh, that, would be, that could maybe even be considered a warning for them. A little bit like, hey, this is going to go downhill fast for you if you keep doing what you're doing. Hmm. Um, so uh, I guess, I mean, like I said, I wouldn't want to be bit by any of them. But if I had to choose, if I had to take a bite, it would certainly be the copperhead. Now, are there, are there uses for copperhead uh, venom? Yes. And, and um, when we're advocating for these animals, we like to point out that the copperhead specifically, their venom – has been used to attack cancer cells, you know, so, and huh. specifically breast cancer. It can stop that from spreading. Hmm. So, um, and many venoms from snakes have been used for, are, are investigated and used for their pharmaceutical properties to 
benefit humans. So, you know, uh, the venoms of snakes are also fascinating, but there are hemotoxic venoms like like the copperhead and like our vipers, uh, uh, rattlesnake and cottonmouth, which um, can be used to treat blood disorders. Mm. You know, um, other snakes that are neurotoxic and some examples, some famous examples of that are the cobra, but here we have a coral snake, you know. Those venoms can be used to treat uh, neurological disorders, even Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. You know, so there's a treasure trove in there, and the sna- in the snake venoms of things uh, that we uh, can utilize from from these animals. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's a it's a highly evolved uh, you know bioweapon. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, the same can be said for a lot of uh, a lot of substances in the world that we use medicinally, be it a uh, you know a spice or uh, you know or something else. So. Yeah, that, that 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 makes sense, and that would be another reason not to just indiscriminately kill uh, uh, venomous snakes in our uh, vicinity. And then, of course, coming back to just the the you know, the perceived danger and the lack of danger, right? Exactly. So we try to arm people with the facts, you mm-hmm. know. And no matter what we do or what anyone does, snakes are going to elicit fear, you know. And that's uh, they're really good at that, but they're also fascinating. So when we when we address people with proper information, and like I said, you know, just being able to identify a copperhead and, and learning a little bit about their role can help because there are lots of things that are more deadly than copperheads. You know, like I said, one per, I think it was back going all the way back to the 60s, mm-hmm. only one confirmed death from a copperhead bite. But there are lots of other things that, that kill people every year in huge numbers that don't elicit the same fear mm-hmm. as a copperhead. So it's pretty fascinating. So I had... Um, Oh, uh, during the Atlanta Science Festival for the last two years, we've done uh, what I like to call the Biology of the Despised series. So we started with copperheads and Mm -hmm. we did snapping turtles last year. I think this coming year, maybe we'll just do snakes in general. But Mm -hmm. um, I had some interns from Emory, uh, Erica Fisher and Natalie Bauer put together a beautiful presentation and they put forth some things that are more deadly than copperhead snakes. And uh, I thought I'd share a couple of them with them here because, uh, you know, shopping on Black Friday, for example, (laughs) 550 deaths a year. Um, Really? Wow. Dogs, 30 deaths a year. Vending machines, 13 deaths a year. Just texting, you know, uh, 6,000 Deaths a year. We should be much more afraid of texting than we should of oh, copperhead snakes. And, uh, you know, hot tap water accounts for 45 deaths a year. So wow. These are all things that, at least by the numbers, deserve a lot more fear than our, than our poor copperheads. So. Wow. So the next time we, uh, we feel ourselves giving in to, uh, to, to fear of, of a copperhead or hear someone else overreacting, we just need to remind them hot tap water <laughs> and vending machines. More Stay away. to our well-being. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Mark. Well, thanks for coming on the show and chatting with us again, chatting about, uh, about amphibians and snappers and, uh, and uh, copperhead snakes. Uh, tell us, if, if anybody out there wants to, to learn more about the Amphibian Foundation, where can they go? Yeah, our, our website, the amphibianfoundation.org, that has uh, lots of ways that you can uh, get involved. Uh, these You do not have to be in Atlanta to get involved in amphibian conservation, so we outline lots of things people can do. Uh, and then we're on all the social medias uh, at, at Amphibian Found. Excellent. All right, well, thanks for chatting with us. My pleasure. Thank you. 
All right, so there you have it. Uh, thanks again to uh, Mark Mandinka for coming in again. Uh, if you want to check out the Amphibian Foundation, you can read all about them at amphibianfoundation.org. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.